0: Thank you very much. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, so I know you guys have been going through the book of 1 Samuel, so you're familiar with some of the context of what's happened so far in this book. Uh, The ark has been taken and now returned. And uh, so we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter... Seven. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 to 17. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And when the, people, when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and Israel answered him or and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and drew them into conf- and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word the Lord has for us this morning, and it is eternally true. I'd like to spend our time this morning focusing on three truths that are pulled out of this text, three necessities that this text highlights for us. In fact, everything in this text is really revolving around and flowing out of these three things, these three necessities. The first is the need for repentance. The second is the need for someone to intercede for us. And the third is the, re, is the need of reminders of God's faithfulness to his covenant. So let's tackle these one at a time. First, the need for repentance. In this text, very beginning of this text, we see Samuel calling Israel to repentance. Repentance is always preceded by the preaching of the truth, by hearing the truth. So Samuel highlights a few things, a few realities that we need to recognize if we're to have genuine repentance, a genuine turning to God. He highlights, uh, he says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. So the first thing you see is the disposition of the heart. Two times in this text, Samuel makes mention of the heart. Their hearts were either not God's or they were divided and not his exclusively and God is after the entire heart of a human being he will not settle for part of it he wants all of us and the heart in the Bible is the control center for the person it's not just the affections it's not just the emotions it's everything so everything in our lives flows from our hearts. So what we're really talking about is the essence of who we are, the inner man, the inner person. And Samuel is calling the Israelites to a total inner commitment to God. They are called to return, which is repentance. He says, if you are to return to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord. So put away their idols and turn their hearts from those idols to him. The first thing that we see that we in the issue of repentance is if if the truth is going to be preached, we have to recognize that sin is fundamentally an issue of the heart. Now a lot of times we like to think about sin as just these external things that we do. Right? It's just I I did this wrong thing. I, whatever, cheated on this test. I lied to this person. That was a sinful action, yes. But that sinful action flowed from a disposition of the heart, from an inclination of the heart that's been affected by the fall. See, in Adam, when we fell, The entire person was affected by that, not just our actions. So this worshiping of the Baals and the Asheroths is really an issue of their hearts. And that's why Samuel twice mentions the heart. The issue of sin is always an issue of the heart. And that heart condition of sin results in a alienation from god notice he says that if you will return or if you are returning to the lord in other words to to return somewhere means that you were there and you have left and so the israelites as god's covenant people had the privilege of being in a covenant relationship with god he was their king he was their lord he was their god and they were his people and they had left that place and given their worship to dumb idols made of material that God himself created, that are fashioned by human hands, that were worshiped by the peoples that surrounded them. So as part of the covenant people of God, they were to be consecrated to God, set apart for God, exclusively his. And they looked around and they saw, well, all these other people have these things that they worship. Why can't we do that too? And so uh, Samuel, in saying, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, means that if we're going to genuinely repent, we not only have to recognize that sin is a condition of the heart, but we also have to recognize that sin alienates us from God. We're separated from God because of our sin. That is the most damaging aspect of sin. You see, we... The the problem with sin, again, is not primarily the things that we do, but the consequences that we suffer. And I don't mean just earthly, temporal consequences. I'm talking about eternal consequences. I'm talking about sin is heinous and evil and damaging because God is holy and our sin separates us from Him. And so repentance, rather than being viewed as something that escapes a consequence is really at its core a turning of the heart that was alienated from God to God. It's a returning to the Lord. And in order for that to happen, we have to hear and understand that sin has separated us from God. We are not naturally in right relationship with Him because of this sin. And therefore, we are in need of deliverance. Notice what Samuel says. He says, if you were returning to the Lord with all your heart and put away the foreign gods and the, uh, and the Asherah. So, uh, if you're returning to him with all your heart, you can't just do that and give lip service to it and not have some practical implications in your life. He's saying like, you have to do that and, uh, and also put away these foreign gods, put away these idols, repent of your idolatry and serve him only, and so there's an exclusivity there that God is after. In other words, you can't have a divided heart. You can't be part in with the gods or the false gods and the idols and part in with God. He says, then uh, he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the deliverance that Israel needed in this moment was deliverance from their physical enemies. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And so there's a disposition of the heart, there's a separation before God, because we are idol worshipers, we have uh, given ourselves to cheap substitutes, and we've given our worship to these cheap substitutes, and that's separated us from God, and we need deliverance from the sin that infects us, and there is an exclusivity in following God where he demands his people's absolute covenant loyalty to himself as he gives his absolute covenantal loyalty to them. As his people, they belong to him. Their allegiance and fidelity are to be his alone, like like a husband and a wife are to be faithful to one another alone within the covenant marriage. So God's people are to be faithful to him alone alone as his covenant people. So this is what Samuel preaches to them, right? And so he does not shy away from the reality that they're in. And the only path to repentance is to hear the truth of our condition. And he's calling them away from that and to something else. He's calling them back to the Lord. And so repentance then is a response of the heart when confronted with the truth that causes us to turn from our sin. But if you're turning from something, you've got to turn to something else, right? You can't just be walking in this direction and sin is this direction and be like, okay, I'm repenting. I'm just making a a shift about 15 degrees this way, right? Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of direction. It's going this way, which sin is leading us away from God. And it's saying, no, I'm no longer going to go this way. I'm going to go this way and going to God. That's that's what repentance is. We must turn from our sin to God. And in this text we see Israel responding appropriately. We see them expressing a repentant attitude in three different ways. First of all, we're told that they pour out water before the Lord. Now, I'll be honest with you, I am not exactly sure what the heck that means. Like I I've I wrestled with this for a good while like what is the significance of pouring out water before the lord here's my best shot uh, in ancient times conquered people would indicate their fidelity and submission to the one who conquered them by offering water and dirt right it was it was it was saying here here's our life our our our, our, our produce that we make that feeds us and our water that sustains our life we're giving it to you, we're, we're yours. We're, we're being loyal to you from now on. It indicated their allegiance. Water here seems to represent life. And in Lamentations 2.19, we're admonished to pour out our hearts like water to the Lord. So my best stab at what this means is that they are consecrating themselves to God. This is an act, an outward act that indicates their commitment to consecrate themselves to God. It represents their total commitment to God. And then we see also that they fast. They fast for that whole day. Now, this is not just going without food or water, but this is actually an outward expression of a correct inner attitude of contrition toward God. They're showing that they are giving a higher priority to spiritual matters than to physical needs and material concerns in their life and then finally we see as they repent they confess confession with the lips alone is not repentant confession Jesus said these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me the the type of repentance that is genuine repentance will involve a confession but it's a confession from a heart that's longing for God given the emphasis that Samuel has given the heart and the rest of the text this seems to be a genuine confession of repentance that seems to flow from a conviction that they have sinned against God and hear me on this it's not just a fear of the consequences oftentimes we can confess because we're afraid of what might happen rather than because We have genuine godly sorrow for what we have done. And Israel seems to have come under the conviction of their sin. And so this appears to be a genuine repentance. So what does this first section mean for us? i got two two points of application for us on on this. The first one is this. We live in a world that is hostile to the truth. We live in a world where preaching the gospel using biblical language of sin and repentance and judgment and grace, where being faithful to God's truth is and will continue to be, for the foreseeable future, considered hateful. We live in a time where where you, as young people growing up, are living in a post-Christian culture. Before, when, when I was a kid, generally sympathetic toward Christianity. Now, the trend is moving away from that and it's becoming openly hostile toward Christianity. The morals of the Bible are considered evil by the world. The very idea of absolute or objective truth is denied and truth is said to be subjective and determined by each person. And that's, that's the world that we live in now. It's a postmodern, post-Christian world. And so as a result of that, there is going to be, and probably already is, tremendous pressure on you to compromise that truth. I was just talking to Andy, and he was telling me about his oldest who has gone off to college. He graduated from here. And it's a wonderful thing to be surrounded by other people that are upholding your faith and honoring your faith and helping you grow in your faith. But when you leave here, you go out into a different context. You go out into a workplace, you go out to a university, you go wherever. And it's not like here. Um, we, as a family, we homeschool our kids. And one of the dangers of homeschooling your kids is you can raise them in a little bubble where they think everybody's just like all the people that we hang out with all the time. And, and what happens is when you leave here, you're going to discover how radically different it is in a world to believe simple, objective truths of Scripture. How much that causes ripples all around you. And we live in a world in a culture that is in desperate need of truth and clarity. And the church and Christians like Samuel need to be clear and bold in proclaiming the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture in a culture that has rejected God and is under his judgment and need of repentance. If you look at Romans 1, you see that when God judges a people, it's for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and he removes his restraining grace and says, "Okay, go ahead. Live your way sin away. And so what what is needed more than ever is people to go out into this dark world that carry the light of truth with them. That are unashamedly, like Paul, uh, unashamed of the gospel. That are unashamed of God's truth. Because it is only through the truth that repentance comes about. If Samuel had soft-pedaled this thing, If he'd been like, yeah, you know, you've done some bad things, but they're not that bad. You know, I mean, God's a little bit disappointed with you, but He's not angry with you. What what would have been the the like pressure on them? What would have been the urgency to turn to Him? Guys, this is like real life. This is not just something that's in a book. This is not just something that your parents believe. It's like eternal destinies of people rest on whether they hear the truth and believe the truth and repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. There's nothing more significant than this. And God is calling every believer to safeguard the deposit that's been given to to them of the truth. To guard the truth of the gospel that has been once for all delivered to the saints and to proclaim that and take that out into a world that needs it. And so the only way that happens is that Christians have the courage of conviction to unapologetically give the truth to sinners who need it. And when that happens, there is a likelihood that you will experience ridicule, hatred, rejection, and persecution. In other words, it might not go like it did for Samuel. But hear me when I say this. like Just because it didn't go that way for you doesn't mean that God's not using it. And I'm convinced that there are many people who don't see any results from sharing the gospel that will be astounded at how God used them in eternity when they see people that came to faith as a result of them simply being faithful to the truth. But there's a second application for this, and that is for us. We must repent. As Christians, repentance is not just a thing you do when you come to faith. In, in the 95 Theses, Martin Luther in the first one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he will that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. You see, the danger for us as Christians is we can think, well, I don't really need to repent. I'm saved. I mean, God's grace covers all my sin. And That's true. But what does He also require of us? He also requires of us that we repent of our sin, that we turn again to Him, that we return to Him. The danger is we can think that truth proclaimed and repentance is needed for them out there, but not for us here. And we need it every day. And so there's a massive implication here. As you guys grow up and move on from here, this has a massive implication for the church that you attend, that you choose to go to. You need to commit now to finding a church that preaches the truth of God's word without apology and with conviction, that has people who will surround you uh, with the truth of God's word, will live that out with you, will call you to a life of repentance and faithfulness, will encourage you and walk with you through that. This also means that we need to keep short accounts before God. We need to be quick to respond to the conviction of the Spirit. We don't want to get to the point where Israel was at, where they had actually really abandoned God and gotten full on into idolatry. We have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, sensitive to the Word of God, and be ready and willing and have a disposition of heart that seeks to deal with our sin immediately. And all of this is meant for God to work through the Spirit and His Word to conform us to the image of Christ or to bring about what Paul calls in Romans chapter 1 the obedience of faith. Right? God is after the singular devotion of His people. He is after the whole heart of His people. He is after the whole life of His people. The Reformers had a saying. It was Coram Deo, living before the face of God. And I think that in our contemporary Christian culture, we've lost that. We've abandoned a pursuit of holiness for a pursuit of relevance. We've lost sight of the holiness of God. We've lost sight of the glory of God. And we've lost sight of what it means to be the people of God. And so we need to respond when we are convicted by the Spirit quickly, enthusiastically, with repentance that we might live as God calls us to live. Second point is this. There is a need for someone to intercede for us. There's not just a need for a repent, for repentance. There's a need for someone to intercede for us. In verse 5, Samuel says, I will pray for you. In verse 8, the people ask Samuel to not cease crying out to the Lord to deliver them. So repentance will result in a knowledge that we are incapable of saving ourselves, incapable on our own, and we need help that we cannot produce. Samuel here is functioning in the role of a priest. A priest is one who mediates or stands between God and his people. He serves to present the people to God and present God to the people. So the first great priest in Israel's history was Moses. And if you read Exodus, you'll see over and over again how Moses is interceding on behalf of his people. How Moses is the go-between between Israel and God. How he brings their appeals to God on their behalf. So Israel is acknowledging their need for God's power to save them. And Samuel responds by offering a sacrifice for the people and functions again as a priest who makes atonement for the people. And in doing this, he cried out to the Lord for Israel. In verse 9, his appeals are heard by God and approved by him, and so God acts on their behalf to deliver them. Now, here's the application for this. Hopefully, you can see the connection here already. Who else has made atonement for his people? through the shedding of blood in such a way that God would approve of that sacrifice and deliver his people. Who is our great high priest who lives to make intercession for us? Sinful human beings can have access to God, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ, his once-for-all-time sacrifice, that we have access to the Father. And so when we pray, we don't pray alone. In Romans 8, we read that the Spirit is interceding for us. Paul says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Our great high priest by whom we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And Samuel here is foreshadowing the work of Christ on behalf of his people. He's picturing a future deliverer who would once for all time give the people of God who trust in his death and resurrection access to the father and not only that but he lives as a resurrected lord and savior to plead our case before the father christ continually stands at the father's side on behalf of his people and says every time we pray they are mine they are mine in fact he brings our prayers before the father so listen, you and I still have a need for someone to intercede for us. It's just not a mere human being. It is Jesus Christ who is truly God and truly man and therefore is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, yet at the same time be like us except for the fact that he never sinned. See, he's the perfect mediator. He can relate to us and yet he retains His deity and holiness. So He is the only one that can go between us and the Father. And as we pray, we pray in faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Which means we are invoking His name every single time we pray. You don't approach God on your own. You don't walk into the throne room of the Creator of all things with a swagger on your own merits, under your own abilities, the only way that you approach Him as a child is by approaching Him with Christ. We still need a mediator. And that, what, what I mean by this is that you can have perfect confidence when you pray in faith, in Jesus' name, that your prayers are heard by God because of Christ. You can know every time you go to the Father with the smallest, seemingly most insignificant thing that you're facing, your worry that you're unwilling to tell anybody else because they might think it's silly or stupid. You don't go alone. You go with Christ. And He brings your cares, your requests to his father as your intercessor. We can have absolute confidence that our sin is dealt with when we repent and that we will not fail to enter eternal life and be delivered from the power and punishment of sin. We can have absolute confidence not coming from ourselves, but only owing to Christ as our substitute who endured the wrath of God for us on the cross and rose to show us that his sacrifice was acceptable. And that confidence is only ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. You want to know the thing that gives us confidence to go to God in repentance over and over, even for the same thing over and over and over and over again? Knowing the entire time That you will always be forgiven over and over and over and over again. It's Christ's death on your behalf and nothing else. That's what gives you confidence. Then that should drive us into the arms of God when we sin, knowing that when we approach him in genuine repentance, he will always hear his word of forgiveness and promise that He will not abandon us, but will bring us safely to eternity with Him. Third point. We need a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. We need a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. So we need repentance, we need someone to intercede for us, and we need a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. In the text, there's this almost passing remark about Samuel setting up a stone, and calling it Ebenezer. So you might be familiar with the the hymn "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing." That's where that weird line that nobody knows what it means. Right here, I raise my Ebenezer, and everybody's like, wow, "What? What's raising it? Like, is this like a is this from a, a Christmas carol? Like, are they lifting Scrooge up? On what is this?" uh That's from this text, and. So the line goes here, I raised my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That line is taken from this text. Samuel is named at that because he says, till now the Lord has helped us. So the purpose of this memorial is to serve as a reminder of the truth that God is faithful to his people and faithful to his covenant promises. The idea is that when somebody walked past this, they would be reminded of God's grace and provision in the past. But more than that, God's ongoing faithfulness to his promises. the, the, The hope of the covenant people of God is in the covenant keeping God himself. See, God makes promises to his people, and he will not fail to keep those promises. And one of those promises is, I will be your God, you will be my people. And we need reminders because we are prone to forget. We are prone to become distracted. As that song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We have a sort of spiritual amnesia that we all struggle with. We experience God's grace and salvation. We experience his goodness and his provision and his Uh, keeping of us his sanctifying work in our lives his goodness to us and as time goes on if we're not careful we can tend to look at other things and other people and so we need to be constantly reminded and what we see in the rest of the chapter is that Israel prospers the Lord continues to be with them things are working out as they should Samuel judges Israel And the picture seems to be pretty optimistic. But as you'll see in the next chapter, Israel forgets what God has done, and they failed to trust him. God says in the next chapter that these people have rejected him. See, they forgot his covenant faithfulness that they were meant to remember and failed to trust him in light of his promises. So what does that mean for us? I mentioned that Christ paid for our sins and intercedes for us. And that he will continue to be faithful to his covenant promises to his people. And yet we also are prone to forget that. And God has graciously given us reminders. He's given us reminders of word and sacrament. And when we gather to worship God, He speaks to us through His Word and He reminds us of His promises. He reminds us of His faithfulness. He reminds us of our need for Him. And then, in the Lord's Supper, we are given a tangible reminder that when taken by faith, seals those promises on us. We are reminded week in and week out of his faithfulness and our need for him. They're signs and seals of the covenant. We take the bread, and in faith we say, as surely as I am holding this bread, this is how sure I am that Christ's body was broken on my behalf. We take the cup and say, as surely as I'm holding this cup, this is how sure I am of God's covenant faithfulness to the covenant that was inaugurated in His blood that Jesus purchased with His precious blood. It is not a mere memorial. It is a means God has given us to not only remind us, but as we take those elements in faith to serve to strengthen our faith and renew the covenant within us because we can't see the spiritual realities right now. We can't see anything beyond the bread and the cup. So God gives us these reminders. Our limited minds can't comprehend them, but they are means of grace by which God keeps us and grows us and assures us. They are means by which He strengthens our faith and helps us to trust His promises that have not yet been realized and remain confident in His care and absolute commitment to His promises. Listen, all of the things that God has promised you were bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ and that means they are as good as done even though we haven't realized them yet he will not fail to keep one person who is trusted in Christ he will not fail to keep one promise he has given to his people he will not fail to bring about All of the things that He has said in Scripture that we might spend eternity in fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore and His presence. And that kind of changes our perspective on this life, doesn't it? It kind of changes how we deal with difficulty, how we deal with opposition, how we deal with struggles. We need the covenant reminders to remind us of the covenant-keeping God. We need to remember and trust in His covenant faithfulness over and over and over and so every week we say till now the Lord has helped us as we take the bread and the cup and in that God says I will continue to do so for your sake for the sake of my son and for the glory of my name let's pray father thank you for your word and thank you that it is eternally true that you have given it to us to encourage us, to strengthen us. And I pray for each of these students here. I pray that you would give them grace and conviction and courage. I pray that you would help us all to live lives that are characterized by repentance and faith. I pray that you would help us to come to you in the name of Christ, in faith, and not get distracted into thinking we come to you on our own. I pray that you would continue to remind us of your covenant faithfulness and that we would trust in you as a covenant-keeping Lord who purchased all of those glorious promises by the blood of your precious Son and will surely bring them to pass. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.